They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they, and they attack us because we're over there. We don't need to go populist left or populist right. We don't need to embrace neo-Marxism or neo-fascism, these disastrous movements from the 20th century. Turns out the answer is pretty much our Bill of Rights, our story. Embrace freedom. That's the answer. And if the LP has a purpose, it's not to put people to sleep. It's to wake them up. We're here because we love liberty. And we're here because we hate injustice. We are here to save mankind. We are here to fight. Join us, the Libertarian Party, in perhaps the most exciting, grandest endeavor in history, the restoration of American liberty. Ideas spread, they can't stop them. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. Hello and welcome to episode 34 of Decentralized Revolution, a podcast from the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus. I'm Aaron and I'm your host, Thanks for tuning in and for bearing with me on the little mini hiatus for the podcast uh, we were on for the last couple of weeks. I was out of town for several days, and then when I got back, I had a lot of work to do on my day job. So I hope you took the opportunity to explore any of our previous episodes, previous 33 episodes uh, that you hadn't gotten to yet. We're going to get right into it today. I've been a customer myself personally of today's guest for a year or so now. And not only is his company, which is called Brave Botanicals, not only are they really great to deal with uh, when you want to get Kratom and CBD and some other things, uh, he's always been impressive when I've heard him speak elsewhere. We get into another project of his called the Freedom Cell Network, and he has some advice for the LP and the Mises Caucus. We'll have links and info for this episode up at decentralizedrevolution.com slash 34. I hope you enjoy my talk with John Bush. All right, John Bush, welcome to Decentralized Revolution. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm a customer of yours at uh, uh, Brave Botanicals, and we're going to get into talking about uh, Kratom and CBD uh, here in a bit, as well as some other things. But I, I always like to start off with... Uh, uh, each person's kind of libertarian store, like how, how did you become libertarian? And then kind of, uh, you can take that into, uh, how you founded, I guess, botanicals. Okay, sure. Well, my uh, libertarian journey was a long, a long one an evolution. Really, uh, in 2002, I learned about an alternative theory about what happened on nine 11. I caught a documentary by Alex Jones called the nine 11 road to tyranny. He's from Austin. I'm in Austin. It was on right. cable access. Really blew my mind about, you know, the treachery of government and learned about false flag terrorism. And from there, I went down a rabbit hole researching the conspiratorial view of history and the Council on Foreign Relations, Trilateral Commission's whole globe push for global government. Um, I, in college, I was learning about the United States Constitution. So I really had an affinity for the Bill of Rights and the Founding Fathers. I was involved with the American Civil Liberties Union, um, pushed back on some stuff in uh, San Marcos and in Austin, Texas. And then I learned about libertarianism in a philosophy class, but it didn't really click for me. Um, but then it was 2007 when I learned about Ron Paul, and he was really a great proponent for the philosophy of liberty, and he helped to really explode the modern liberty movement. So we got really involved in his campaign, and 
libertarianism just kind of clicked for me. We started a political action committee in the state of Texas called Texans for Accountable Government. We did a lot of privacy and police accountability stuff and pro-gun, pro-weed kind of activism. It's uh, still around to this day, like been around for 10 years or so. But also at this time, I was exposed to Murray Rothbard. So it's kind of like Ron Paul was the cannabis, you know, the gateway drug. And then Murray Rothbard is like the mushrooms. And then Samuel Edward Conkin and agorism, I guess, would be LSD. So I just kind of had that evolution and did a lot of political activism, had some great successes. But, you know, after analyzing, it wasn't really success. We just stopped the growth of government. We didn't actually create more freedom, per se, though it was good work, but it wasn't satisfying for me. So also around this time, 2010 or so, started exploring uh, agorism and the creation of alternative institutions and then when cryptocurrency came along, was a big Bitcoin proponent. And uh, ever since then, I've really just been focused. I had two kids. Uh, they're seven and eight now. Great little free kids, no social security numbers, no vaccine. So that's really cool. And my focus now, besides entrepreneurship and business and, and wealth and prosperity, is creating an alternative social organization. So essentially, we can have the free society that we all deserve without having to wait on the general public or the politicians to catch up with, with where we're at. Tell me about Brave Botanicals. Yeah, well, Brave Botanicals is a company that I founded three years ago, and we sell Kratom and CBD. We also have some other products like colloidal silver and some immune-boosting supplements as well. But this is Kratom here. It's our number one seller. It's a member of the coffee family. It's made from the powderized leaves of the Kratom evergreen tree. There's three distinct types of Kratom. There's really like three or four, maybe five, but there's really three big ones. And that's red, green, and white. The red varieties are really popular and people take them for chronic pain and relaxation and help with sleep. A lot of people take the reds instead of prescription pain medicine. And then on the other side of the spectrum is the white varieties, which are a little more uplifting and energetic. It's kind of like different strains, but they're not like strains like cannabis. It's just the different plants and the way that they're grown and the color of the leaves as well. The white ones tend to be a little more uplifting, good for energy, focus, motivation. Also good if you're like going to a party and you want to quit drinking, you can drink on Kratom and it helps to take the edge off so you're a little more sociable. And then the green variety is kind of in the middle. It's really good for stress and anxiety. In smaller amounts, it can be uplifting. In larger amounts, it can be a little stronger with some mild euphoria and help with pain. It's super duper subtle. So it doesn't like get you high like cannabis. Right. It does feel good and it really helps to take the edge off. So a lot of people have found that it really enhances their life. And it's a really big game changer for people that find themselves addicted to prescription pain medicine or even addicted to heroin, for example. Yeah. People utilize Kratom to help overcome withdrawal symptoms and find sobriety and get their lives back, which is a very beautiful thing. Yeah, I, I'm a, that's what I'm a customer of uh, so far with Brave Botanicals is the is the kratom and uh my primary reason for for trying it out was is back pain i've got just like incredible back problems have uh, since i heard it about 20 years ago and uh the only thing that's ever worked for me as far as pain relief has been you know the opioids whatever you want to call them the oxycontin and things like that and i've been fortunate enough that i have taken those over the years and I don't have an, a problem with getting addicted to them, but there's some, you know, there's health drawbacks to that. And doctors are, are kind of hinky about 
prescribing it these days because they're worried about what the the DEA or the FDA or whatever. Um, so it, and I, I, what you said, I, I totally agree with that. Um, I get a little bit of that same feeling and effect and pain relief uh, from Kratom, especially the red kind that, that I can with, with uh, the medication. Um, it, it works on the same receptors or something like that. Yeah, the active alkaloids in kratom, which are mitragrinine and 7-hydroxymitragrinine, they bind to the opioid receptors. So some people, if you define a substance, if you define an opioid as a substance that interacts with the opioid receptors, then some people would argue that kratom is an opioid, although it's not, it doesn't interact with the opioid receptors in the same strong manner. Like there's this great doctor, a scientist that explains like a keyboard key. And so... Mm-hmm the kratom is lightly tapping on the key very subtly. Whereas a lot of these prescription opioids, chemical opioids, they're banging on that opioid receptor. And and then that is what really leads to the dependency because your body stops producing those neurotransmitters because it's relied on the drugs to do it for so long. But interestingly enough, it also binds to the serotonin and dopamine receptors which is what is responsible for the elevated mood and the slight mild feeling of euphoria and really helps with the stress and anxiety. So it's a very, you know, it's almost like an adaptogen where you take it and it kind of gives you the support that you need. And again, it's just the powderized leaf of a tree, which is a very beautiful thing. It's not a chemical. uh, There's no pharmaceutical element at all. all. All of ours is tested for purity. So it's just what you see is what you get. You're just getting raw plant powder and it really has helped people a lot for a wide variety of reasons. When you, when you started to uh, think that you might want to get into this, um, how difficult was it to, uh, to figure things out and get, you know, sources, where do you get it? I don't need details, but like, where does it come from? Is it, is there problems? Uh, uh, have there been uh, with, uh, you know, customs and stuff like that, importing it? Uh, how does that all work? Well, it's, it's definitely a difficult industry to be in. At the time that I started selling Kratom, I was running Brave New Books, which was a, like an activist meeting space, bookstore. And then we mainly got most of our revenue from health products. And so we started selling Kratom and it just kind of sat on the shelf. I started taking it myself and it was like, wow, this, this feels great. This is really good for stress. And then in 2016, the DEA tried to ban Kratom. Later on, we would realize that it was actually the FDA that was pushing the DEA to ban Kratom. They wanted to add it to Schedule Schedule 1. Thankfully, that awoken a sleeping giant in Kratom users, many of whom were never activists. They got active, held protests, organized rallies, sent letters, called their congressmen, and ended up like 45 or 50 congressmen and 10 U.S. senators, which is a pretty big deal, sent a letter to the DEA saying, we need to back off. The DEA did back off. The FDA didn't back off. They continued their pursuit and have since been putting out all sorts of propaganda about Kratom-related deaths. So they say there's 47 Kratom-related deaths. A Kratom-related death is much like a COVID-19 death, like the guy in Florida that died in a motorcycle accident and he was COVID positive. So that was a COVID death. There's people that were shot and had Kratom in their system. It's a Kratom-related death. Or this one guy fell off a roof, Kratom-related death. Somebody had heroin and fentanyl and cocaine in their system and kratom, kratom-related death. So it's been really difficult. Um, 
I can't accept credit cards or debit cards because of this Department of Justice program from the Obama era called Operation Choke Point, where the federal government pressures the banks, they pressure the credit card companies not to allow credit card processing for like uh, firearms, adult toy stores, uh, head shops, Kratom, CBD. These are my favorite industries here and the government's making it hard to do business there. So we do e-check. You share your, you provide your checking account and routing number, just the same numbers that are on the bottom of a check and essentially does an electronic check. Totally safe, totally secure. And of course we accept cryptocurrency. There are import alerts put out by the FDA. So Kratom does occasionally get seized. We have been using the same Kratom vendor for three years now. Super high quality stuff, super reliable, super consistent. There's not a lot of variation in the different kinds. Like if you order white lightning, for example, it's almost consistently always going to be the exact same stuff. Sometimes the vendors have different sources that they have and stuff. We have the same reliable vendor. And I actually linked up with the stateside uh, importer that now like we're getting it by the... Uh, shipping container load and it's being brought over on boats. So I used to buy smaller batches from them. And then I realized that somebody I do business with here in town, they're actually importing from the same guy. So now they import in mass. I'm able to get a good price from them and, and then pick it up here locally. So yeah, it's, it's the same source. It's all from Indonesia, Southeast Asia. Uh, it feels good to, to help the economy over there. There's a lot of Americans that are buying Kratom and really helping folks there. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's great. Uh, what, tell me about some of the, uh, you know, one of the, you know, when I told my wife, I was going to try the Kratom stuff, she was, you know, she did, she went on Google and found the, you know, and she didn't freak out about it, but she's like, Hey, what, what is this? And, and one of the things that with alternative, you know, therapies, medicine, supplements, whatever you want to call it is sometimes there's not a lot of studies, um, that have been done that m might give people some more confidence. What, what do we know as far as ha have, have more studies been done in the last few years over Kratom and what are we learning about its long-term effect and use? Well, you know, from a libertarian perspective, the FDA is essentially like a health, a drug cartel, a health cartel, and they, have a very aggressive, onerous, burdensome uh, method to bring a new drug to market, right? And so Kratom isn't an approved dietary supplement. And in fact, the FDA doesn't want anyone to take Kratom for therapeutic benefits because it's yet to be approved, right? right. And then we have this reverse situation in America and most Western, actually in most governments where if something's not approved, then you can't do it, right? It's not that Kratom's illegal. It is illegal in six states, I should say. Um, but it's it's if it's not approved, then that means you can't do it. It's not supposed to be like that. It's supposed to be if something's prohibited, you can't do it. But if it's not prohibited, everything else is fair game. But that's not what we find ourselves in. So as far as clinical trials, there haven't really been any clinical trials where they got like double blind placebo and do all the traditional testing, um, which for me, I don't need clinical trials to know something's good or not, right? I can have my intuition, I can do my research, and then you can try something and understand that. But there are people that are a little more conservative when it comes to what it is they're going to take and medicine and stuff like that. And so unfortunately, because of uh, the nature of the FDA and that big hurdle, nobody has gone through and done the clinical trials or tried to apply for the new drug. And there was a couple companies that did, but the FDA shot them down. And the problem is, 
it costs like hundreds of millions of dollars to go through all of that red tape. And of course, if you study, you know, libertarian libertarianism and you understand markets and stuff, that's really like a, a protectionism for the existing for the pharmaceutical companies. They don't want people to come in and and compete with them. So I will say that there are studies whereby scientists and researchers go through and compile a lot of anecdotal evidence and history and research. Uh, there's a lot of science. There's a guy named Dr. Christopher McCurdy in uh, the University of Florida Department of Pharmacology, and he's really done a whole lot of scientific investigation into Kratom. Uh, he was the one that I learned that not only does Kratom bind to the, the alkaloids in Kratom bind to the opioid receptors, but also dopamine and serotonin. So he's done a lot of re really good work as well. Tell me some success stories of uh, people who have, uh, you mentioned uh, people using it to, to get off heroin or other drugs. Um, I, I'm sure you've heard a lot of stories of people who have bought from you, um, you know, to give us a couple of those. Yes. Um, before I give you the success stories, I do want to caution because I feel it's responsible as a Kratom vendor to let people know that people can become physically dependent on Kratom if they do take a whole lot, Right. Now, I like to have a distinction between dependency and addiction. And my definition for addiction, I get from Dr. Gabor Mate. He's a medical doctor, and he does a lot of great work with addiction and helping people, especially like homeless people. But he says, you know, there's two tenets to addiction. One is that you're physically dependent. Your body needs it. If you, aren't, if you weren't to have it, you would have withdrawals. Two, it causes some sort of harm to your body, to your family, your relationships, you're stealing money or whatever. You can't work. And then the whole thing with addiction is you continue to take it even though you know it's causing harm. That's when you're addicted. Now, dependency is something that's that I have a distinction for. Like, for example, I'm dependent on caffeine. I take caffeine every day. I drink this clean energy drink. It's got yerba mate and stuff. Um, you know, I could probably go without it and it wouldn't experience withdrawal symptoms, but I wouldn't be as awake and alert. I, ha I didn't take any Kratom today. I didn't take any Kratom yesterday. But before that, I probably took it every day for about two months. Didn't experience any withdrawal symptoms, but there are people, the folks that were formerly dependent or addicted to pain pills or even heroin, they use Kratom to overcome those withdrawal symptoms and they take a whole lot of Kratom because they're feeling pretty rough or they're just used to taking substances to try to, you know, take the edge off or to not feel so painful from trauma or something. And then they've come, be they become physically dependent on the Kratom. For example, there's some people, this is a one ounce bag. Okay. And this should last a normal user, maybe two to four weeks. Right. But there's some people that take this much every day and they, I would say are dependent on Kratom. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say that rises to the level of addiction unless they're so dependent on Kratom that they're taking money from their girlfriend's purse, for example. Right. But if someone were to take this much for months on end and then stop taking it, they could experience some withdrawal symptoms. More often than not, withdrawing from heroin or pain pills is not as bad, but you could still find yourself in a tough situation. And the way that, that it works is your body's, like your opioid receptors and your new neurotransmitters, they have signals and the body sends itself signals and then the body produces these endorphins. But if you replace that natural process with an external substance, then your body's like, oh, well, we can kind of take a vacation from producing those endorphins and doing those signaling because it's it's been done for us. 
And that's when a tolerance gets developed because you need to take more of something in order to have the same effect. So you can find yourself in a slippery slope. So before I share the success stories, I wanted to do the responsible thing and let people know that if you are going to take Kratom and it does benefit you to the point where it becomes a daily use situation, it's really important to take a few days off here and there so your body has ample opportunity to rest and to reset and so you don't develop a tolerance. And we send out emails and stuff that give advice on tips on how to how to avoid tolerance, for example. But um, a great success story that I like to share, I'll just share two quick stories. One is my girlfriend. We've been together for like three years. And when we started dating, she was taking Adderall every single day and a whole lot of Adderall as well. Um, and if you're familiar with Adderall, it's, it's I'm very, I'm very, I'm very familiar with Adderall. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a, I've a, I'm a longtime user of that for, for ADD. Right uh, and I, and I'm interested to hear what you say here. Cause I think I might have some evidence that, uh, a similar experience, but go ahead. Right on. Um, and so she, the Adderall was not benefiting her in the least bit and she would find herself like really hyped up and, in order to pump the brakes, as she would say, she would drink every day after work or after college when she was taking it during college as well, because she was all amped up and wired. So she needed to come down. So she would drink. This turned into a nasty alcohol habit as well. And it was like a really bad slippery slope. So we started dating and I'm like, hey, I'm Kratom man. Let me help you. You should try some white lightning Kratom. And you might find, and, and what we noticed, I studied this great book called The Power of Habit. I think that's what it was called, but it talked about this, this habit formula. And there's like a cue, which is something that causes a response. And it's like a cue and then a stimulus and then the response, something like that. So essentially for her, it was she'd open up her inbox and there'd be a, like 20 emails and she'd feel overwhelmed. Then she'd go to her desk drawer and pull out the Adderall and take it. She felt so overwhelmed. I can't possibly do this without using Adderall. My mind will be scattered. I won't be able to do it. And then her, so the response was go to the drawer and get the Adderall. And then the effect after that was, oh, okay, I feel relieved. I can handle this. My brain's firing on full pistons and I can concentrate, right? So one thing that people can do to interrupt that pattern, that habit pattern, that habit loop is, okay, so the same stimulus was there. Oh, wow. I, this huge thing of, of emails. I feel so overwhelmed now. Instead of reaching for the Adderall, you reach for the Kratom drink and then you drink it. And then some people find like really a lot of what the Adderall helped her with, in addition to the concentrating, was that feeling of being overwhelmed. And for me as an entrepreneur, I get that same feeling often as well. And the Kratom helps me to be like, whoa. So long story short, she was able to quit Adderall for the first time in like a decade as a result, she was able to drink less, and then eventually she was able to quit drinking altogether. She does drink Kratom and drink it regularly, but it is not, there's really no negative side effects. If you do drink a whole lot of Kratom regularly, it could be a little taxing on the liver, you know, and your liver and kidneys are like, well, slow down, we're having to really work hard down here. But compared to the pharmaceuticals and compared to just drinking a whole lot of alcohol, and especially alcohol and pharmaceuticals together, is really bad for the liver and kidneys. So that's a great success story. And, you know, it wasn't an easy thing for her, but it's it's an example of somebody really changing their life using Kratom, moving away from pharmaceuticals. And then um, one more good story early on when I started selling Kratom, this was a story that really was like, wow, this is this isn't just a business for me. I'm really helping people and I'm and the government doesn't like it. So as a libertarian anarchist, I'm like, yeah, this is a great place for me to be. Uh, there's this woman that called me from California. And she, she was super grateful. And she said, 
I have been addicted to Percocet for like 20 years and I've tried to quit time and time again. But every time I quit, I have terrible withdrawal symptoms. And I end up taking it again the very next day or even that same day because the withdrawal symptoms are so terrible. She was in a situation where she was taking care of her grandchildren. I think primarily, I don't know where the mother was, but she was taking care of like two or three grandchildren and they were super active, bouncing off the walls. And she would find herself so messed up on the Percocet that she would like be in bed shaking like this, kind of going up and down, just kind of messed up on the Percocet. And she wasn't able to keep up with the grandkids. Well, she discovered Kratom and she was able to quit the Percocet entirely and literally had little to no withdrawal symptoms whatsoever. And she called and was like crying and super grateful because now she could take care of her grandchildren again. So yeah. I always thought that that was really a really powerful story. Yeah, that's uh, that's good. My my problem wasn't as uh, great, but uh, it, it certainly, um, you know, having something that works and doesn't take a toll on you otherwise is uh, is uh, pretty valuable. And uh, at first, I, you know, people, if you haven't tried it, um, it's kind of hard to get used to the taste. And uh, I, I found out that I just put mine in Gatorade and uh, it it's fine. Uh, it's tolerable then, but, and everybody's different. I've heard some people who actually kind of like the taste after a while. So, yeah. I like um, it. yeah, well, um, one last question on Kratom. Um, I noticed, I looked on, uh, the brave botanicals, uh, site. I think it, I think it's that your site, um, where there's a map of where it's illegal. And then there's some States that, uh, um, there's legislation pending, um, I'm in Ohio and Ohio is one of those, uh, that says legislation pending. Uh, I don't expect you to know the, the, the Ohio bill right off, but what type of things, uh, what type of evidence, what type of testimonials, what type of lobbying tends to work on state legislators, uh, who are maybe considering this? Okay. So Kratom's illegal in six states. And uh, let me see if I can name them. Rhode Island, Wisconsin, Vermont, Alabama. There's another one in the south, Arkansas, and I'm missing the sixth. And then it's legal in Denver, Colorado, of all places where mushrooms are now legal. Right, right. Uh, San Diego County in California where cannabis is legal. couple cities in Illinois, and then maybe one other city, and then one in Florida. And... So early on, I thought like it's all a sinister big pharma plot. That's why it's illegal in these states. You know, the FDA federal intervention effort is a big pharma sinister plot, right? The FDA doesn't give a damn about you and your health. They just want to protect the profits of the pharmaceutical companies. But I believe what happened in these states was ignorant lawmakers, Debbie Do-Gooders, when they banned K2 and Spice which is like this synthetic marijuana type thing, which actually is really bad. It's a chemical and a lot. It's like there's an outbreak of it in the homeless communities are all addicted to it and they get all whacked out and like do weird movements and stuff. Um, like they were investigating, maybe their aides went to the head shop and they saw K2 Spice and Kratom next to it on the shelf. Yeah. And they both start with K, so they must. Yeah, that's right. And so in their infinite wisdom, they went ahead and banned Kratom too. That's It got lumped in in some of those bills where they banned k2 and spice that's actually what they tried to do in tennessee there was a bill that passed 
But I don't know who snuck this loophole in or what, or maybe it was actually an educated lawmaker, but they banned synthetic versions of Kratom. I don't even know if that really exists. Yeah. Uh, actually, it might have also banned uh, concentrated Kratom, a Kratom um, tincture. What the hell is there a name for it? We don't sell them. I prefer just the raw powder myself. But there's Kratom tinctures, uh, like an alcohol tincture that makes it stronger and more condensed, right? So you get more of the alkaloids. Uh, but this guy was like, you know what? I read the law and I'm going to sell Kratom powder. I'm going to buy Kratom powder. Distribute. He got busted with it. He fought it. And the, the attorney general was like, actually, that's legal because it's raw Kratom plant powder. So the thing to do, I would suggest in those states is, you know, I there's this organization called the American Kratom Association, and they are an industry association for Kratom. And really what they've done primarily is there as one of the big things is push back on Kratom prohibitions. And one of the tools in their tool belt is what's called the Kratom Consumer Protection Act, which has been passed in a handful of states uh, in, in the U.S. Utah is one of them. There's a couple others. And one of the things that they do when a state is trying to ban Kratom, which pops up because the FDA is constantly the FDA did. A, they're doing an end run around the federal government so that we can't ban it nationally. So we're going to go to the states, the counties and the cities. Thankfully, the science is on our side. And whenever a bunch of people show up and give testimony, like imagine that woman from California speaking to a legislature or, you know, legislators love to hear from veterans, too. So there's veterans that deal with PTSD or pain from the war or whatever. And legislators just eat that up. And so they go in and they they're like, OK, look, we understand your concerns because a lot of people say there's Kratom that Kratom that's adulterate, adulterated. So it's like somebody put fentanyl in Kratom. I don't know that this actually happens. I imagine it's happened a handful of times, but I don't think that a lot of Kratom vendors are spiking their Kratom to make it stronger. I think it kind of defeats the purpose, um, although maybe it's happened. There was an instance in, in Western Europe where somebody did spike it with something and six people died. And so that's always what's pointed out like, oh, that one time in Western Europe, but it's like, oh yeah, well, what about the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that have died from pharmaceuticals, which are legal from the, the opioids and fentanyl, for example. But so they come in and pass the Kratom Consumer Protection Act. So I, of course, would rather have the Kratom Consumer Protection Act than have Kratom be illegal, but I'm not a fan of the Kratom Consumer Protection Act because in most instances, it requires the vendor to register with the state, yeah. right? It additionally requires all sorts of different testing, right? So obviously it's good to test for purity and the market already is demanding this, right? People want that. So Kratom vendors and Kratom suppliers are like, well, we're going to go ahead and test all of it so we can meet that market demand. There's a self-regulation in the market. Yep. Um, but what one of the things that they want is to test for the alkaloid content, which we don't do all the time. Um, a lot of the stuff does actually have the alkaloid alkaloid testing on our supplier side, but it's not every single time, every single strain. I know that it's great stuff with high alkaloid. And it's the same stuff that we got from the last shipment, from the shipment before. But the reason why is because the Kratom Consumer Protection Act puts a limit on the percentage concentration of 7-hydroxymitragrinine, which is the secondary alkaloid. Mitragrinine is the primary one, 7-hydroxy. I don't know why. I'd like to ask them. That scientist I referenced earlier, we're getting like really deep into the weeds on, on Kratom, but it's right. it's a lot of good stuff. That scientist earlier I mentioned, Dr. Christopher McCurdy, he pointed out that 7-hydroxymitragrinine uh, may be the alkaloid that more likely leads to dependency. 
it has more addictive tendencies. I don't like to use the word addictive, but more dependent tendencies. And so perhaps that's why the American Kratom Con the Protection Act, the American Kratom Association wants that. I'm not a fan of that. That's some intervention. That's like, let maybe somebody does want the 7-hydroxymetagrinine in a higher concentration. I don't know. To have to test for that, that's going to increase prices. And then to have to register with the state. And then, you know, once Kratom legislation is on the books, they have this beautiful section in the Texas, in the, in the code. Now they can expand upon it because that's what governments do. One more criticism of the American Kratom Association. I haven't wanted to say this publicly because I don't want to attract attention, but I'll say it now. Uh, <laughs> um, they recently launched this campaign where they want Kratom users to snitch on Kratom vendors that make therapeutic claims, right? Oh, my goodness. Now, as a Kratom vendor, I know better than to say anything about treating, curing any disease, right? Because I don't think Kratom actually treats or, treats or cures a disease in, like that, you know? But I know better than to say that. That's the big no-no language. That's why it always, on, on the packaging and stuff, you'll see this is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any disease or whatever. And those, those are the big words, the treat, the C word, the C word especially you want to avoid. Well, the FDA does have this, of course, government always oversteps, and so... I often talk about Kratom helping people with chronic pain. I never say Kratom will take your pain away or cure your pain, right? It doesn't even really do that. It does provide a lot of relief for a lot of people though. But what the, what the FDA says is, well, if you say that it helps with chronic pain, chronic pain is a symptom for this disease or that ailment or whatever. Therefore, you are doing a big no-no. Regardless, that's the FDA. But now the Kratom, American Kratom Association is coming and saying, here's a little form you can report. We'll reach out to them. If they don't fix it, we're going to turn them over to the FDA. And even the American Kratom Association, the head of the American Kratom Association, he referenced that, that example in Europe. He's like, well, we got to do this because, you know, we know what happened in Europe and see what his fault is. I wish he was more of a libertarian because then he would understand even if every single Kratom vendor in the United States of America only sold Kratom powder, that's it. We don't mention pain. We don't mention anxiety, focus, none of that. We just sell Kratom powder. It's just raw powder. You can do with it what you please. People like it, whatever. The FDA would still be coming after it because the FDA isn't concerned about your health. The FDA is a protection racket. It's a cartel. So that's, it's a naive thing. I don't know if, if it's like a, their help. And then, and then next, you know, two weeks later, they send me an email. We need your help. The FDA is attacking Kratom again. But it's like, I, but you're like, you're a little, extension of the FDA now. Right. Ah, makes me sick. And uh, you know, so yeah, the advice I guess it's if you really want to stop prohibition is to promote the Kratom Consumer Protection Act because it is the fallback, right? Unfortunately, legislators, we can't come in there and they don't it's not really appealing to legislators to say, well, I think that we should let the free market regulate itself and human beings should have all of the freedom in order to do whatever they please with their body or consume whatever they want. Maybe more people think that way. Maybe there's some good legislators out there. But if someone really wants to reverse a Kratom ban, then the thing to do would to say, here, this piece of legislation can address the genuine concerns that you may have and still enable people to access this very beneficial plan. Yeah. Um, so uh, while I have had uh, a lot of success with uh, Kratom, uh, CBD, I, I've tried it and not from you guys. Um uh, from another source, uh, for the same issue to see if it would treat the pain. And I had like zero effect at all. Um, so I'm wondering, uh, maybe I don't expect you to diagnose my condition or, you know, what, why that is for me, but 
how does how does CBD work on the body, and ha- and how is that different from kratom and and just give us the breakdown there. Okay, so um, CBD, also known as cannabidiol, is a cannabinoid in the cannabis plant. It's like Dr. Seuss there. Right. Um, it is in contrast to THC, another cannabinoid. THC gets you high. Uh, the body has an endocannabinoid system, which is this beautiful synergy between plant and earth and human being, right? It's all this interconnected system. And the cannabinoid THC interacts with the CB1 receptor part of the endocannabinoid system. And it's in your brain. It's what gets you high. CBD, another cannabinoid, interacts with the CB2 receptor, which is in your spleen. The purpose of the CB2 receptor is to regulate homeostasis or balance in your body. And so the reason that CBD helps with pain and inflammation is whenever you're experiencing pain or inflammation in your body, you take CBD, it stimulates the CB2 receptor. The CB2 receptor then is like, oh, something's out of balance in the body. So maybe we need to send a little more pain relieving neurotransmitters and endorphins and hormones over to that area. And then you find relief. Now, a big contrast between Kratom and CBD. In many cases, CBD is more effective at the root of an issue. For example, there's been studies that show CBD can reverse arthritis. Hmm. Kratom is more of a surface level solution. Interacting with the opioid receptor, it pushes those endorphins and it actually relieves the pain on the surface. Uh, I have found in my own experience and, and the experience of customers anecdotally that the CBD or sorry, the Kratom tends to be more effective at actually combating the pain. Now, for some people, the CBD really helps. I will say, I don't know what vendor that you used or what concentration, a lot of times the concentration. So we sell a 500 milligram and a 1500 milligram. And I use the 1500 milligram to help with sleep sometime. And man, it's like, wow, I sleep really good. Sometimes I sleep too good and I have trouble waking up in the morning. Uh, The 500 milligram is really potent as well, but sometimes people will get 150 or 300. And then sometimes uh, the stuff isn't as effective or it's watered down or it's not exactly what people say it is. But our 500 and our 1500 milligram especially are are pretty pretty potent and a lot of people have had, had a lot of luck. And the CBD helps with stress, anxiety, sleep, and pain is one of the big selling points of it. Is there a particular delivery method that's that's better for CBD? Because I know you hear commercials on podcasts and, you know, there's gummies and there's salves and all that stuff. Uh, uh, is it individualized to each person or? Yeah, um, it's always people's preferences, but I think um, the straight drops are the best way. Drops under the tongue is the probably one of the fastest ways to absorb it and, and have, have an effect. We also sell CBD flour which you can smoke in a joint or, or whatever it, 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 it doesn't get you high, but it does like, there's a super, super, super subtle, like, Oh, okay. This is legal. Huh? I'm in Texas. So cannabis is still legal here. So that's kind of cool that you can smoke CBD and stuff. Although the, the, um, regulatory agencies, I think it's the Texas agriculture department or whatever. They did just try to ban consumable hemp whether it's vaporizers or smokable hemp. And thankfully some vendors got together and they sued the state and they got a court to put a two week injunction. They just extended that injunction. It was one of the most ridiculous things because you, a Texan resident can a citizen of Texas could still buy 
smokable hemp from Colorado or Oklahoma or whatever. They just couldn't buy it from their fellow Texan. It wasn't illegal to smoke hemp in Texas. It was illegal to sell hemp. But thankfully, a lot of hard work went into it, and that's paused at the moment. But that's a cool way to consume it as well, to smoke on a doobie, and it just kind of takes the edge off. And some people like to smoke. That'd be a great thing for people that are trying to quit smoking cigarettes with nicotine and all the harmful chemicals in there. You could still have that smoking effect. Remember the pattern interrupt when you're like, oh, I, I'm, I just finished my meal. Time to smoke my cigarette routine. Instead, you'd grab the doobie and you still go out on the porch and have that. Yeah. A lot of people appeal to smoking because it's breathing. They're breathing nice, dedicated breaths, which is always a magical thing to help with with all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Um, how has the legal environment um, been around CBD? I would imagine it's probably better given that um, marijuana is uh, uh you know, freeing up in, in a lot of different places. Do you have the same problem with credit card companies and stuff with CBD? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The problem does exist. It's not as big of a problem with, uh, as it is with Kratom. Like I can, I have, I could get a CBD credit card processor. The flower is, is, and the vape is less easy to get. It's more risky. It's a high risk merchant scenario. Um, but the Kratom's like the, like the stepchild that's neglected. Nobody wants to touch Kratom. It is, if there's a Kratom vendor that accepts credit cards, it's because they have some sort of hack. I did hacks for a while for, for a year or so. And then, and then I, I had to go through six different, you know, I got my girlfriend's PayPal account shut down my Stripe account, my roommate's Stripe account, my cash app. I can't do cash app anymore. Cause I had all these clever haps of catch hacks of capturing the credit card offline securely and then entering it manually on another computer or sending myself a PayPal invoice to five different emails I would rotate through. And every time it would get shut down. So I finally was like, I'm just going to educate my customers about e-check and encourage them to use e-check. Imagine I lose customers cause they're like, why do I want to put my e-check? Even though it's the same information that's at the bottom of a checking account number, and it's probably easier if someone were to capture your credit card number to go take that credit card number and use it to buy stuff online. If you give the checking account and routing number, there's not much that you can do with that information unless you've gone through the background check to get a portal like I have where you can run check, checking account transactions to do an e-check. Totally safe and secure, but it is slowly but surely opening up. Um, Trump, love him or hate him, passed the farm bill a few years ago now that basically legalized CBD at the federal level. That kind of gave the signal to markets, entrepreneurs and legislators that, okay, it's legal at the federal level. We were, we were uncertain because of the federal uncertainty. Now there's certainty. However, there's still lawmakers in Texas that are still ignorant and still smoking the reefer madness line. And, you know, it's a lot of conservatives, unfortunately, are really afraid of change, I guess. And so it's difficult. And I think a lot of people in government really just want to control things. When they start to lose control, they kind of freak out. And then when when there is more freedom and there are some changes, they want to still control everything. So like CBD was legalized to grow it, but the bill was like 40, 30, 40 pages. I don't know how long it was. I tried to read through the damn thing. And it's like really, really controlling on the people that are selling, that are trying to grow CBD. And they have the Texas Compassionate Use Act where they allow the sale of cannabis and THC weed, but only like up to 4% or some, some very small concentration that's not really medical cannabis, right? Yeah. It's unfortunate. 
Um, yeah, I do the e-check thing uh, with you guys and uh, also doing the trusted buyer program, uh, which is uh, really simple. And uh, um, so, d- yeah, I would encourage people um, don't let the e-check thing be a, a deterrent. Give it a try. It's it, it works pretty smoothly. Um, and yeah, so I think people are I think people are used to the fact that they have their credit card numbers stored in their phones and they're just used to you know, one clicking everything, but, uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's worth the extra, extra step. It's been a hurdle. We do cryptocurrency as well. Okay. And I want to make sure to let people know if they want to try a free ounce, you just got to pay $5 shipping and handling, and I'll send you a free ounce of green Mangda Kratom. It's the most versatile, well-rounded, uh, you take a small amount, it's kind of uplifting, good for stress, good for focus. You take a larger amount. It can help with pain, help to kind of take the edge off. And so it's a $15 ounce, but we'll send it to you for free. All you got to do is cover the shipping and that's free ounce of Kratom.com. And then once you click add to cart, you're presented with a one-time offer to try our four other strains for 50% off. So it comes out to uh, $28.75 plus $5 for shipping and handling. So for $33.75, you can try all five of our types and see if some of them work better for you than others. And do, do, do you have a sixth one now? The white Borneo? Is that? Yeah, we have a sixth one. I haven't yet, just because of time, I haven't yet included it in that offer uh, or our combo packs. You can buy all the five types at once and get a pretty steep discount. Uh, we also sell capsules as well for the people that don't want to try the powder. But white Borneo is a really good one as well. It's a, it's a white variety, so it's uplifting, energetic. But the white Borneo, in contrast to the white lightning, this one tends to be a little bit more euphoric and a tiny bit stronger. The white lightning is a little more sharper and good for business or focus or, or studying even. Yeah, it's a really cool plant, man. It's a lot of people don't know about it. It's kind of got like a cult following, but it's growing in popularity and the pharmaceutical companies don't like it. So yeah. it's a great um, it's a great plant if you're looking for a natural remedy for all sorts of stuff. But if you're a libertarian, it's also pretty cool, too, because the government doesn't like it and we're selling it anyway. Yeah. Uh, another thing I want to talk to you about, I was in the, I think it was the Tom Woods elite group uh, a couple of days ago, saw that uh, uh, Miguel Duque, who is a Mises caucus member. And, yeah, he's a cool guy. yeah, he's a great guy. I, I met him briefly uh, at the uh, libertarian convention. And I've also heard from my fellow uh, Mises caucus board members, uh, nothing but good things about Miguel. And, uh, he had nothing but good things to say about, about you and, uh, was encouraging Tom to have him on the show. And I, I had already kind of, I emailed you a couple of weeks ago, so I didn't steal the idea from him, but I, he did mention something that I didn't know about, and that's the freedom cell network. Tell us about that. Uh, well, I have a, a long history of political activism and in that career of activism had many successes and actually authored some legislation that got passed in the Texas legislature and pushed back on all sorts of police accountability stuff and, and growth of the police state in Austin. But that political activism wasn't satisfying for me because I began to realize that the victories that we had, as I said earlier in the program, they were really empty victories. We were slowing the growth of government in like one or two little very specific areas. Meanwhile, government is exploding all across the scene, but we weren't actually creating more freedom. And I recognized that we were caught in this cycle, this reactionary cycle, whereby our activities and our time and our energy and focus was dictated by our enemies, the enemies of liberty, the state. We weren't charting our own course. 
And we were like, and I also would always think about the Ron Paul revolution, this term revolution. And he's like, we're going to have a political revolution and we're going to restore the constitution. But if you look at the root word of revolution, even it has love in it, right? Remember the E-L-O-V? That was Ernest Hancock that came up with that, the, re the love illusion. The root word of revolution is revolve, right? And so revolutions are like, all right, we throw, we overthrow the people in power and then we take that position of power, the state, and then we become the people in power and then absolute power corrupts absolutely and time goes by, right? And so I see the same thing with, with, with politics and even with libertarians in politics, uh, you know, there's just this tendency. It's like the ring from Lord of the Rings. You know, uh, libertarians are going to find more success if they keep it up. I hope eventually. Right. And you guys, obviously, I hope you all have more influence on the Libertarian Party because I appreciate what you all are doing. Not a big fan of the overall strategy and tactic of utilizing the Libertarian Party. But there's just something that we got to do as a people in order to create a better vehicle to ride in. Right. So human beings are social animals. And in order to fulfill our common wants and needs, in order to um, have some semblance of normalcy and balance in society, there ought to be a social organization that we utilize in order to make decisions and provide mutual aid, mutual support for one another. Right now, that institution is the state. There's other alternatives like the church and fraternal organizations, for example. So what we're doing with freedom cells is essentially creating an alternative means of social organization that isn't hierarchical, top-down, coercive. Rather, it's decentralized, peer-to-peer, -peer, and it's a series of mutually beneficial voluntary associations. And so right now we have over 4,000 people that are participating globally. I came up with the concept in 2014, promoted it a little bit on speeches and podcasts at conferences and stuff. In 2014 and 2015, and I kind of pulled back and really focused on my business and my children. Derek Bros of the Conscious Resistance Network, he took the idea and really ran with it. And then, you know, a few years later, it's like, wow, there's 1,500 people participating all across the world and 2,000 people now, 2,500 people. My business started doing well. I had more time for activism. So I got back on board and we've really managed to blow it up, especially in COVID 19. So, what our network is unique, it has a, a structure an organizational framework that I think is really innovative and it has uh, some anti-fragility and anti-corruption built into it in that it remains decentralized no matter how big it grows. It grows horizontally instead of growing vertically with hierarchy. And so essentially the framework is this. At the core of it, the most important component is what we call the inner cadre group. It is a group of eight people of your closest confidant, trusted friends, family associates, partners, whatever. And the reason why we use the number eight is because eight is the optimal number of people to have the most creativity. There's this guy named John David Garcia, and then this guy, Bob Podolsky, wrote this awesome book called Flourish. He has a similar concept. He calls it an octologue. But this guy, John David Garcia, did, did actual research and studies and found that eight is the optimal number of creativity. If you have fewer people than that, then there's not enough ideas. There's not enough people to implement the ideas. If you have more people than that, like 12 or 15, it starts to become bureaucratic. There's more division. And so we choose the number eight. It doesn't have to be eight. It could be seven. It could be nine. It could be 10. It could be whatever. It's an open source idea. People can do whatever they want with it. But that core group is the inner cadre. That core group works together on common goals. 
Some goals that we recommend early on are to have a encrypted form of communication or text message chat or telegram chat is what's most popular in the network. And then to have regular meetups where you go to someone's house, you work in the garden, you meet up, you keep up with one another, ideally once a week, at least every two weeks or every month. You have three months of food storage. You work together to get this food storage on board. Everyone has firearms, knows how to use them safely and proficiently. Everyone has a bug out plan. These are like some survival goals. The goals can take anything with parenting, growing food, whatever, uh, financial goals, business goals. And so here's where it gets really cool. You have your group of eight. You're working together on common goals. Life is better. You're supporting one another. You're helping one another. You then encourage the creation of seven other groups of eight. And then that eight group of eight, 64 people, they form what we call a middle cadre. So you have the inner cadre, you're most dedicated, you talk to them, you connect with them most of all. Then you have a middle cadre where you support one another, work together on common goals, maybe have a monthly meetup, do a skill share. You call from the 64 to go help plant the garden or till the, the field and so-and-so's property. You guys share amongst one another, you trade, maybe you guys chip in to buy food storage at a discount. Maybe it's like, hey, most of us have nine millimeter firearms, so let's all start doing bulk firearm purchases. Then it gets even cooler. So imagine the group of eight is really close to each other in a in a local area. And then the group of 64-ish, right? It doesn't have to be 64, is around a city. Well, we're already we're starting to do this in Texas. So we have a pocket of people in Austin, bigger pocket of people in Houston, and an even bigger pocket pocket of people in Dallas, Fort Worth. So we have our little inner cadre here in Austin. There's a couple inner cadres in Houston. There's multiple inner cadres in Houston. We all have a middle cadre, but eventually as we grow the Austin, grow the Houston, grow the DFW, we all form into what's called a meta cadre, which is eight groups of 64, which is 544 people. Now that's just happening in Texas. We organize and link up with the other meta cadres across the world, and we have the Confederation of Freedom Cell Networks. And so... There's all sorts of cool stuff that we can do with this. One of the things that I definitely want to do is whenever we have enough people, I want us to have our own health share so we can opt out of the health insurance paradigm uh, where we can make a legal entity or it can be like an agris one or it can be cryptocurrency or a decentralized application. I don't know. But the, the whole idea is that you work together on common goals, whatever they may be. You engage in mutual aid, supporting one another. If someone loses their job, you go to the group of 64 and it's like, hey, I lost my job. I got something on in the works, but I'm $500 short on rent. So rather than going to the government or going to high interest debt with the bank, you're like, all right, well, we got 64 people. If everybody chips five bucks or whatever, we can, we can help you out. And then you reciprocate, you help one another. It's also mutual defense. You know, as we can, as our numbers grow, the, the idea that I hold in my eyes, like we have 10,000, 100,000 people, like let's all opt out of the state together and declare our independence and stop participating in their coercive systems. Then we have a mutual defense compact where we get each other's back, so on and so forth. So it has all sorts of applications. This mechanism can be utilized for the Libertarian Party. So you have a state party and you organize in small groups of eight in your local uh, precinct or your county you know, your county, whatever. And then you have the state or the city one, which is a middle cadre. Then you have the meta cadre and a great way that this could work. So imagine you have 24 activists that are ready to go lobby the state legislature to, you know, for cannabis reform. And rather than going as a group of 24, you split up into your three groups. We're going to go on Monday. We're going to go on Wednesday and we're going to go on Friday. 
That way there's an appearance that, wow, you hear those guys, the, the libertarian guys with the libertarian party talking about cannabis reform. They've been coming in all week, man, rather than just one thing. You know, there's all sorts of different ways to that this strategy can be utilized. But the, the primary purpose for, for me and for the people that are involved with me is to create the free society that we all deserve without waiting for the government to do the right thing or for the public to catch up with with these ideals. How describe the sort of the onboarding process for somebody that that is interested by this idea? What do they need to do, and and what will happen once they make contact with uh, a freedom? You know, the freedom cell. Uh, is it freedomcells.org? I think is the yep. address. Freedomcells.org is the website. The first thing that we're going to need is to collect a DNA sample, biometric thumbprint. I'm just kidding. Stool sample. No. Yeah. So you go to freedomcells.org and there's a member map. Really cool feature of the website. Uh, I get the number 4,000 because there's 4,000 people on the website. So just to be clear, there's not 4,000 people that are organized into inner cadres and middle cadres and stuff. Although we'll get there. It's 4,000 people that are expressing interest and participating participating on the website, which is kind of, we don't want it to be a social media site. We want it to be a place of action, but that's where the 4,000 number comes from. But there's still hundreds of people, Atlanta, Pacific Northwest with Miguel and them. Northeast has a group. There's a big group in Tulsa, Oklahoma. There's a group in Atlanta. So you go to the website, freedomcells.org, you register, and then you'll be asked to put in an address. You don't have to put your home address. I would advise you not to put your home address. Maybe put the Starbucks down the street or the park down the street, just so people can get an idea of where you are. Then you go to the member map. You also put skills like I have these skills. I'm good at bookkeeping. I'm, I can grow gardens. I'm good at self-defense or whatever. And it's like, what skills are you interested in learning about? And then you can use the skills to link up with people. Then you go to the member map and you put in your address or your area. And you might be surprised if you live in a big city or, or populated area, you know, there'll be 10, a dozen, maybe two, maybe one people in that area. So then you reach out to them. You can also search the cell map. So there's already cells active, reach out, join the cell, introduce yourself and then try to meet up in person, get on the phone, so on and so forth. So that would be the, the protocol to, to get involved in the movement. Yeah, that sounds good. I, I I'm, I'll definitely check that out. Um, let's talk about, uh, I, I, before we came on, you said you might have some advice, uh, for the, for LP, uh, people, in particular, the Mises Caucus, and we're always uh, up for constructive criticism uh, of the type uh, from people who, like yourself, are maybe not as uh, keen uh, on being involved in the political process. But you know, our our instincts are to um, to always listen to that and to not shut those people out. So, uh, what, what are some of the thoughts you have? Okay, well. You know, from a bigger picture strategic perspective, you know, I would always I, I always argue against the political activism and instead encourage the agorism and the creation of the alternatives. However, I believe that there is value in the political activism and we should do death by a thousand cuts because yeah. Lord knows the enemies of liberty are coming at us from all different angles all the time. And they have been for hundreds of years. Right. Um so I would say that if people only do political activism, then we're doomed to do that revolving thing and we just maintain the state. So I'd say political act like Miguel, he's all involved in the LP, you know, props to that. But he's also doing the freedom cell thing. He's also exploring agorism and all that stuff. So I think even folks that are in the LP ought to still own firearms, link up, join us in the freedom cell network, participate in the counter economy 
promote alternative institutions like cryptocurrency and stuff like that. Don't just do politics or else then we'll just always have politics and government. We're trying to have total freedom, right? We can't have total freedom with government, even if it's a minarchist night watchman state, it's still going to be corrupted. It's still going to control people. It's still going to have to have some source of revenue with taxation and stuff to fund the military or whatever. So, but forget about that. I don't want to just, my whole thing, I had that arrogant phase when I started becoming an anarchist and I would like talk down to political folks and stuff. And then I realized like, man, I'm just being a dick really is what I'm doing here. And I want to honor and respect people where they're at. So if people enjoy LP and they feel like they have fun and they have friends there and they're doing stuff, that's cool. You know, nobody enjoys the LP. (laughs) What are y'all doing? Uh, But no, it's, uh, we do. um, That that's actually kind of what got me back into things. I was active in the party here in Ohio uh, for about seven years, starting in 2010. And I kind of came away from it. And, um, but then when I saw what the Mises caucus was doing, I was like, I can get involved with these guys and and hopefully change some of the culture, um, in, in the party. Not feel so yucky. Yeah. And I agree with what you said about, you know, uh, I, I, I think Mao said, of course, you know, different context, but he said, let a thousand flowers bloom. Right. So that's, that's a, a, a nice concept from a horrible person. Uh, but I, I, I very much subscribe to that approach that I, you know, the decentralized uh, ethic goes to that too. Like I, yeah. I don't know how to do what you know how to do. So why don't we be friendly with each other? Mm-hmm. You know, don't expect each other to, you know, be writing checks, uh, uh, for something that we can't really get behind, but we can still share ideas and yeah. encourage people. So, um, and, and so if you are to do LP things, then I, you know, another criticism of the libertarian party is that whole bureaucratic tendency. And like when I would question folks in the Texas libertarian party, like, okay, what are the victories that y'all have had? What are the successes? And they're like, well, we maintain ballot access and we ran all these candidates. That's like, but, and then I, my, the question always for LP is, what did that do to create more freedom for me or yeah. for you, right? And so there's this tendency where people get caught in this bureaucrat. There's a name for this phenomenon. It, it misses me, though. It escapes me. Where the goal now for the Libertarian Party is to maintain the party and to bring in money to maintain this little bit of staff and to make sure that we can fight off the two-party systems attempt to make it more difficult for us to maintain ballot access. And then we got to get at least 5% so we can stay on the ballot next session or whatever. That's not more freedom, right? That may, that may be necessary for a Libertarian Party, but that's not more freedom. So if I were in the Libertarian Party or LP Mises Caucus, this would be my strategy. Because again, I'm not in politics now, although I'm interested and I follow it, but I had a pretty successful political career and I learned about leverage and I learned about lobbying and I learned about what needs to get done in order to bring about change and in order to have legislators and lawmakers actually listen to you and pay attention. And what I see is I don't see that there's very many libertarian parties in the country that actually have leverage or that represent some sort of threat to the status quo, which is what's necessary to, to get listened, to get heard. So here's what I would do. I had, if I was in charge of the Ohio State Libertarian Party or Texas Libertarian Party, I would do some research and find the low-hanging fruit incumbent candidates from the Democrat or Republican Party that are most at risk of losing to the other party, not to the Libertarian Party. It's very unlikely the Libertarian Party is going to win. Then I would pull all the resources 
And I would find really powerful people. Another problem with Libertarian Party is a lot of people run. I know, you know, you got to start somewhere, but a lot of people run and it's like, okay, what have you accomplished? And it's like, oh, I just graduated college. You know, it's like, oh, you want to govern me, right? And you just, what are your successes? What do you know? Are you a leader? You know, so try to find candidates and you got to start somewhere, okay? And it's good to get your name out. People see your name. You're getting through the process. You're, you're learning how to debate or how to, how to actually run a campaign, right? So not to discourage people, but, you know, find your guy that's the successful business person or the attorney or the medical doctor or the guy that's been involved in politics and has had successes lobbying the legislator for this, that, and the other. You run him, maybe there's three races. You run good people against, they don't even actually have to be good people because they're not playing to win. They're playing the kingmaker role. That's what I would call the strategy, the kingmaker role. So you got your libertarian, you got the, we're trying to unseat the Republican incumbent. He had a terrible thing. He actually has a couple scandals. He made some big mistakes. So the libertarian comes in and he just shits on the incumbent, the whole campaign. They send out mailers that are exposing his flaws. If he's invited to a debate, he maybe even, you know, he's may throw softballs at the Democrat, maybe even praises them in some regards. The whole goal is to get the Democrat in office and to unelect the incumbent. And you have two other races where you're doing that. The state pulls their resources. They don't put money towards this or that. They put money towards paying for mailers, paying for events, paying to amplify the voice of the libertarian and shit all over the Republican. OK, so let's say that you're able to unelect one or two incumbents. Let's say the Libertarian Party and everyone, the Republicans know what's going on. They're like, I see what they're doing here. Holy shit. They're coming for us. Let's say you unelect two Republican incumbents. Maybe one of them's a committee chair, you know, and has power in the legislature. Now the legislative session comes around next time. And all of a sudden they're like, there's a little bit of a buzz. And so instead of lobbying for everything and being, again, reactionary, like, oh, this bill, we got to put this fire out, we got to put this fire out, blah, blah, blah. And then your enemy is dictating your course. The Libertarian Party says, OK, what are the three issues with one main one? But what are the three issues that we want to focus on this year? And what are the three bills that we are either going to defeat or have passed? We're going to author them or we're going to fight for a bill that's already been introduced the past two sessions, but hasn't really got out of committee or whatever. And we're going to focus all of our energy on that full steam ahead. We're going to spend all our money. We're going to encourage all of our activists to talk to their neighbors about it. We're going to encourage all of the phone calls and all of the lobbying days are going to be about these three issues. Ideally, just one is the main focus one. And it's a low hanging fruit as well. We're in it for the long haul. We're in it for we're in it to establish ourselves and have leveraged this session. The Libertarian Party in most states has no leverage whatsoever. In fact, the, you know, it's there. It's it's the other parties don't really take the Libertarian Party seriously enough to be like, yeah, we want to grant you a meeting. We want you to sit down with the legislature. We're going to really take you seriously. So you come into that next legislative session to lobby and push for your stuff, and there's a little buzz, and they're like, oh shit, this guy's a Libertarian Party guy. They freaking and first they're going to be angry, but they're going to respect you. And so you just, that's the plan. And it's not just a one session plan. It's a plan for the next 10 years. In Texas, the sessions are every two years. I would come up with a 10 year plan, five sessions. This is what we want to accomplish. These are the people we're going to target. This is going to be the issue. And you keep those three issues through the whole campaign. And maybe after two sessions or three sessions, you've unelected five or six people. And now it's like, wow, this is a force to be reckoned with. Get that stuff done. Then you start coming in and trying to get your people elected because now the people and the public are like, wow, the Libertarian Party is getting stuff done. This is cool. We want we want more of that. So 
that would be the strategy that I would implement. That's what I think the Libertarian Party can do most effectively to pursue the cause of liberty. Sure. Yeah, it's a good idea. Um, I'll pass it around and see if, uh, uh, you know, our focus is on on local stuff and on ballot issues like uh, we helped with decriminalize Denver that you yeah. earlier. Um, so that's another way at it. But if we ever get to, you know, and the LP in different places, not the Mises caucus, um, that could that could definitely be something that uh, they should consider. Yeah. National LP could to do that, too. I always thought like guns and weed. Yeah. Those are two great things for the Libertarian Party. Weed's always great. Guns are always great. And then another one that's great low hanging fruit for Libertarian Party nationally or in the state level is um, we want to do away with barber licenses or yeah. licenses to braid hair. And then there's these little low hanging fruit like Ben. Um, uh, what the hell's his last name? Ben Farmer. You guys know Ben Farmer. He's a pretty popular LP guy in Texas. I, yeah, I know the name. He's like, I want the Libertarian Party to do away with daylight savings time in Texas. Just something fun like that. That's a low hanging fruit, you know, to start gathering up the victories. But the cannabis stuff, Libertarian Party always does do a lot of good work on cannabis. And uh, there's some LP activists that are involved with Normal. And Heather Fazio, of course, was a big LP activist. And she's really doing a lot of great work in Texas. That's always a great issue for LP folks as well. All right. I, I've kept you for uh, uh, an hour here, but I, I want to give you a chance to uh, tell us about other things you may be involved in or other things that you're just enjoying that you think other people might like to uh, check out. So plug, plug whatever you like. Oh, we talked about, I don't want to talk about my kids or anything or my girlfriend. That's, that's basically my life is my business, my kids, my girlfriend and freedom cells. So we covered the stuff okay. that would be interesting to your audience. Right. Uh, if people want to try just free ounce give it a try. What do you have to lose? Really helps with people. Feels good. Helps take the edge off. And then uh, join us in the freedom cell network. Do the LP thing. Do the freedom cell thing too. I'd be happy to consult or advise any libertarian party folks on how they can leverage the freedom cell structure in order to have more success politically. Cause I think there's a lot of opportunity yeah. uh, there as well. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, did you, uh, in that post that Miguel made, I think he mentioned that you were starting a podcast or part of one or it, did I get that wrong or? Yes, I'm doing a podcast again. I wish I had been doing a podcast for the past 20 years. That'd be pretty, maybe I'd have more episodes than Tom Woods. He has like 1700 or something, but uh, I'm doing a podcast again. It's called Live Free Now and you can find it at livefreenow.show live free now dot show it's uh the con the tagline is bringing you the news views tips and tools you can use to live a free prosperous and healthy life so i focus on freedom activism exposing all this stuff get into some conspiratorial stuff and uh, also focus on wealth and prosperity and natural health and, and health freedom as well live free now dot show do you ever uh, run into Scott Horton down there? I haven't ran into him. We're buddies. I see him at conferences occasionally. I guess uh, Libertopia a couple of years ago in, in California, I saw him. But no, I, I don't run into him. He's a big LP icon kind of guy as well. He, yeah, we he got the uh, our Mises Caucus uh, uh, Human Action Award this year, and uh, nice. He just does great work, and I've I've worked with him on a couple of minor projects and. Uh, talk to him on the phone and I never got a chance to meet him in person and uh, hope uh, that'll change soon. If we're ever allowed to travel again and, and, and live our lives after the COVID stuff. So you can travel, man, people it's, 
there's such a distinction on the COVID thing. I don't know where everyone stands in the Libertarian Party on the COVID thing, but life, life is like we went to a outdoor rave party with like 200 to 300 people. And it was literally at the biggest city park in Austin and the cops just turned their head oh, wow. and there was like nobody's wearing a mask. Maybe 10, 2 percent of the people wearing masks, hugging, dancing, a big dance, like 50 people dancing and sweating together. It was cool. And I was just like, man, the, the, the pandemic, scandemic is freaking over. People are just done with it. So I invite people that are still on the fence to come out and live their life again. Yeah, we, uh, my wife and I recently took a trip to Maryland to see some of her family and it's, it's, it's pretty normal out there, but there's that surreal tinge, uh, to, you know, seeing all the masks and I haven't flied yet. I have a flight coming up. I haven't flown yet. Um, so I'm not looking, I'm going to, my plans to like eat peanuts and drink water the whole time. So I don't have to wear the damn mask on the plane, but right, right. that's a good idea. Well, I, I've kept you uh, uh, long enough and I really appreciate your time. And, you know, I'm a, a, a happy customer of uh, brave botanicals and uh, I really appreciate all the, all the work that you put in for the Liberty movement over the last sounds like decade or so. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you for your business. I appreciate all my customers and it's super cool to have a custom majority of my customer, my customer base is like libertarians and Tom Woods listeners and Derek bros followers. So it's, it's always great to do business with really cool people. Okay, great. Nice to talk to you. We'll see you later. And there you have it. I'd like to thank John Bush for being generous with his time. I'll put some links related to our conversation on the show notes page at decentralizedrevolution.com slash 34. I'd also like to thank, as always, Dave versus Goliath for all the music you hear on Decentralized Revolution. And I'd like to thank everyone who gives to Mises Pack at TakeHumanAction.com and everyone who shares, rates, reviews, and subscribes to Decentralized Revolution. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Wow.